Ah, welcome, vibrant friends and fam and tribe. It is so good to be here again. Wednesday night always comes around too slow because it's probably the most fun day of the week. Really excited to be getting into this Solstice Jam with my brother Mario and our honored guest, the returning Emily Ridout, Astro Yoga Specialist. And for the first time ever, we are streaming on Odyssey as well. So Shout out to anybody that might be watching on Odyssey. Good to have you. And welcome everybody in the live chats. We got Glenn, Glenn. <laughs> it's funny how you guys, your names rhyme. Glenn and Glenn. The Cozy Crone, one-on-one, Flat Earth Hippie. Over on the Rockfin side, I see Kabir and Lateral. Dedicated, dedicated Lateral, 2 a.m. UK time, hanging out with us. Awesome. So uh, how's everybody doing? What's up, Vibranters? How you doing, Emily? Welcome. Hey. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. How about you, Mario? What's good? I'm really solid, dude. Yeah. I'm stoked to be here. Wednesday nights are always a good time. So I appreciate the invite. It's almost your time, cancers. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. I'm getting ready for that. So cancer symbolism for me is extra special. So uh, it's always fun. Are you a cancer birthday? I am. Yeah. So July 2nd. So, and actually I'm working on a cancer print right now too. It's been a long time coming, um, but I think it's turning out nicely. I love that. The cancer symbol is my business logo. Oh, is that right? Nice. Mm -hmm. That's cool. I've never noticed that. But it's not your actual sun sign. Remind us why you chose that for a business logo. It's my ascendant. And, and Cancer is the energy of caring for something and nurturing something. And I was hoping that people would feel cared for and nurtured after getting astrology readings rather than, you know, prodded into their soul path with force. Yeah, sometimes the way the uh, tunings I do for people come out and when I'm like giving the recap at the end. Every once in a while, I can tell there's like a little bit of agitation, like, yo, this is hitting too close to home. Yeah, I've done a lot of readings recently where I've had to be like, okay, for some reason, the tarot cards and the astrology recently have been very, the tarot cards have been very sardonic. They've been like sort of in a feeling of mockery sometimes or like gentle cajoling. So I read them and I'm like, okay, everybody. (laughs) And then the astrology has been pretty potent and harsh on some people. So it's been interesting. Hey, my man. What's up, co-host Gabriel? Hey, dude. Hello, family. Hey, Emily. How you doing? I'm We're great. Good. We're good. Very good. Sorry if it looks like I'm squinting. I've been out in the sun and now I'm here in the dark and a tiny little phone. Code just hit the bong super hard. <laughs> you look solid man i'm glad you're here but yeah, it's Emily, nice that's... to see with a collar for once you don't normally dress up it must be to in mario too i'm wearing literally a plain white tee i'm the least well-dressed <laughs> that's funny um but that's really funny i just started recently uh giving tarot readings for people and i feel like i just dove into the deep end with it because i used to do it for myself and friends and things like that but just recently, I started doing it publicly and uh, to, to strangers, you know, from all over the world, really. And some of these readings have been brutal. And so I feel like I've had to navigate those waters pretty quickly. Uh, but it's been an interesting exercise <laughs> for a few different reasons that way. 
There is an interesting comment right here from Cozy Crone about the Schumann resonance. And uh, I didn't know it spiked yesterday, but I freaking felt it. I had like a huge uh, day. <laughs> like woke up, I, I woke up way earlier than normal and I was just like ready to go. And it was a full day of activities. So that leads me to my question for you, Emily. Have you looked at the Schumann resonance much or noticed any uh, sky clock correlations to it? I haven't looked at the Schumann resonance very much. Um, I used to do seismic resonance research when I was like a kid. <laughs> so I was sort of nerdy into the earths, not just like all of the different resonances and the musical things that go with it because I used to teach in a music conservatory. But um, so I like resonance, but I haven't looked very much at the Schumann resonance. But yesterday was a big day in astrology because we were coming off of the full moon. So check and it out. This is what it looked like yesterday. Do you think that has something to do with, um, I think the alignment of the full moon was with a particular galactic center. So if you do fixed star astrology, you look at that. And so it was actually lined up with the center of our galaxy in a particular way. I'm curious if those are correlated. Is that because Sagittarius is pointing at galactic center? Because the moon was in Sag, right? At least in tropical or fixed star. Yeah, the moon, the moon was in Sagittarius in tropical astrology at 23 degrees. I'm not sure where it was in Vedic. I only look at Vedic rarely. Well, okay, so maybe we could get a little recap of some of the uh, Sky Clock stuff from yesterday, since people are definitely having some response to it here in the chat. Some people was rough. Other people, it was wild. I was on the wild side. I was on the wild side, too. Um, Yeah, yesterday. So yesterday, very early in the morning was the zenith of the full moon. Okay, so it was at 3 a.m. my time. I'm in the Pacific time zone. And this one, it was kind of interesting because it was squaring Neptune. And this whole year is stemming from this really powerful Neptune-Jupiter conjunction that happened in April. So I'm still seeing people clearing that out, and they probably will continue to clear that out through the end of the year. And actually, it might catapult people on some different life paths that they weren't necessarily planning on. So a lot of people are working with that energy. And so when the full moon squared it, things that people were holding on to that they weren't supposed to hold on to anymore started to release. And because it was, it was also sextiling and trining Saturn retrograde. So basically what happened to people is if they weren't, something wasn't in alignment with where they were going, particularly the Sagittarius tradition of finding your high philosophy and the Gemini tradition of living in material reality, right? If your philosophy and your real life didn't line up with your dream then it was time for you to do the Saturnian inner work of restructuring your entire inner sphere. So people, people sort of wild carded it, right? So some people were like, just did some really surprise actions. Part of that's the Venus transit over Uranus and the North node too. Um, but people just started making those shifts very quickly. 
is what I was seeing. And some people were mourning it because they were clinging to a job or a relationship or an idea that wasn't in alignment. And some people had major wake up moments where they became aware of behaviors that they weren't aware of before. I myself in the week preceding it had a number of things come up in my consciousness that I had just simply forgotten about. (laughs) Because you remember everything on some level. And there were a lot of things that happened in my whole life that I was like, oh, they're back. (laughs) I uncovered a slew of like 20 years of memories. It was kind of interesting. Because you don't remember everything that happens every day. No, I mean, if I go, if I miss a day writing in my journal, I'm like, what the hell happened 48 hours ago? Mm-hmm. Well, everything you just said resonates <laughs> for sure. So it's crystal clear uh, to me, everything you just explained. That's very interesting. It's a lot with the mutable signs. So people with mutable placements too, or Aquarius placements or Taurus placements, they're getting cleared out. Cardinal signs get a a bit of a break. Maybe not you though, Mario, because Black Moon Lilith might be sitting right about on your sun sign. Is that? Oh, I'm not sure. I really need to spend more time with my chart, to be honest. (laughs) So, but I'll have to look into that. Yeah. I'm super cardinal myself. Interesting thing I found out that uh, cardinal, one of the meanings of that word is a hinge. That's interesting. And when you think about like where the cardinal signs hit, at least I'm thinking of Aries and Libra anyway, it's kind of like you're hinging. It's like a hinge point into the next phase Mm -hmm. or a season, maybe. That makes a lot of sense. I always think about it because it means first, right? And it's the first sign of the season. I really like that, actually. I'm going to sit on that. That's fascinating. Um, I just always, you know, when it comes to things moving around and pivoting, I always think of the wheel, right? And the pin of the wheel, the hub of the wheel and things spinning around it. And then, of course, my love for the North Star and things rotating around the North Star. I tend to think of that, too. Um, So hinge, I I wasn't aware. I'm going to look into that. That is something Dylan pointed out. Dylan Sicosio, when he was on Crow, um, new episode that came out today. Really good one. Recommend it. Dylan's a man. His work is incredible. Uh, but I want to get into, you know, let's talk about some solstice stuff. Unless Gabriel's got anything to weigh in about the uh, full moon vibes and uh, all the fun of yesterday. I definitely love the idea of galactic center being a part of the equation with Sagittarius down there. And I'm wondering if we should call it the Khonshu Man Residence. <laughs> In uh, in honor of our most recent project on the marvelous demystifiers, the Khan Schumann residence. That is interesting. Uh, definitely seems I've noticed. Like I track it in a Telegram group, and that's where I pulled up that photo of it. And there does seem to be some moon connection to Schumann. Yeah, Shum, sh- moon Schum moon on. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, what Gabriel's referencing is our marvelous demystifier show that we're doing. And we're talking about moon night 
which is a trip. And if everybody is wondering when the next one's coming, I think we're going to do it Friday. Yeah, totally. Can't wait. Uh, so, and, Emily, oh, oh, go ahead, dude. Well, uh, just on the cancer thing that we were talking about, uh, the other day I had a fun experiment. Uh, <laughs> it was really adorable. I was uh, driving my grandmother and my mother around town in a gigantic bug hit the windshield. It was disgusting. Maybe it wasn't a bug. Maybe it was something else. It was like just a bloody mess, you know? <laughs> so I couldn't resist, but to tell the classic Lorena Bobbitt joke, does everybody know the Lorena Bobbitt joke from, <laughs> I think it was 2005. I think I'm not sure, actually. I know who that is, thanks to our conversations on Weaving Spiders, but uh, it's funny. We're already talking about... <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> going to cancer. <laughs> so, so, so she chopped off her husband's unit uh, and drove away with it and like threw the evidence out the window while driving away from the scene of the crime. And so the joke for decades now has been... Uh, everybody knows the story of Lorena where she throws it out of the window, but nobody has told the story of the elderly couple who was driving in the opposite direction at the moment that she threw the evidence out the window. And when it hit the windshield, the old man said, damn, Maria, did you see that fly? And Maria says, forget the fly. Do you see the size of the cock? <laughs> That's a great so, so I told memory like, oh, I told the, I told that joke to my uh to my family we all laughed about it and then I had them I said you know what I put a hundred dollars on it that that happened in the sign of cancer and not only did it happen at the sign of cancer it happened just a couple days after the solstice did it chop 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 yeah wow yeah this event <laughs> what was that Emily I said, now there's a solstice event. One of my earliest memories is my family driving past the field where she had thrown the penis and then being like, that's the field. And that's how I learned about Lorena Bobbitt as a child. <laughs> they were Holy like, cow. That's like, <laughs> you're like a firsthand witness. We have a Lorena Bobbitt witness on the scene here today. That's amazing. I think my uncle said it, and then my mother very uncomfortably had to explain what happened to us, who were probably seven or something. I have no family memories like this, <laughs> for the record. Uh, but Emily, I was going to ask you, so one of my friends was decoding um, the uh, alignments yesterday, uh, and she related it to a fucus. And I was just wondering if a fucus is part of your system or process, or uh, if you have an interest in it at all, because it kind of comes up a bit for us on weaving spiders and, and things of that sort. But if not, that's totally fine too. Tell me what a fucus is first. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. So um, some people consider it to be the 13th sign. And oh, so that he's, way. yeah, yeah. He's, uh, it's a man with a snake. You know, I've never heard someone say that word out loud. Oh, that's funny. Nice. Isn't that funny? People always talk about it and I'm like, I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, 
I don't teach a fucus ever other than to teach people that there is a 13th sign and that those systems are legitimate and that they tend to deal more with the goddess, which of course the snake does deal with the goddess, right? And of course the snake is a representation of the sign of Scorpio and the Kundalini power. And of course, you know, the, the law of vibration and the eighth tarot key. You're a tarot guy, so you know all the things, right? You're like key two, eight, and what what is it, 13 for the snakes? But no, I don't do much with, I don't know how to pronounce it still. Actually, oh, yeah. I don't know about the keys thing you're referring to. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. So there are certain tarot keys that deal with certain Hebrew letters that are symbolic depictions of snakes. And these tarot keys represent manifestations of the life force energy, which is symbolized by a snake. That's what like the garden of Eden story is about and the caduceus and, you know, there's a lot of snakes, all the snakes, Um, the, the Ouroboros maybe as well. And so these show us manifestations of this law of vibration. One of them is key 13, I believe. One of them is key eight, definitely. And then I think the other one is key 10, which is interesting because key 10 is the vortex wheel of life, which is the thing that Mario is just talking about. So if you're on snake land right we have the idea of the circle the idea of the vibration and the idea of the um change right yeah exactly yeah serpent symbolism seems to be in the air um i chance just did a great show about uh serpent symbolism uh in part and how it relates to the medical industry and what they're doing with uh snake venom and things of that sort um so that's interesting. And so you say key and you're referring to uh, tarot cards when you say that, right? Yes. Sorry. The, the oh, no, it's all good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 exactly. And the cards you called out, that makes sense. Absolutely. So the word, tar- the words tarot cards are nine letters long, which is a teth, which is a serpent. And also in reverse, tarot cards spells. Drac to rat, which brings you to the uh, Asian calendar. And Draco to rat is nine out of the 12 months. So it's a birth cycle, Drac to rat. Hmm. I love that. I think about Draco a lot, the dragon, not the Harry Potter character. Um, There's a lot with dragon symbolism that I think, I mean, you guys are no strangers to thinking that culture might've covered up some things over the years. Right. And I really think a lot of the dragon symbolism is similar to the snake symbolism got sort of swept away, hidden, covered over with dinosaurs. Yeah. Oh, dinosaurs being very draconian in and of themselves. And then let me just lay this on you. In Hebrew, the word that we have for Moses is from their word that would be like MSH because they don't have vowels in their alphabet. And basically, as a noun, MSH means oil 
or as a verb, it means to anoint with oil. So the uh, same root MSH is where you actually get Messiah from. It's got the MSH in it, which is the savior. But then the word Salvatore etymologically comes from a root word that refers to uh, other than, you know, how we got savior. It means savior as a name now, but uh, which is the same as Messiah, MSH. But Salvatore also refers to in Latin, a genus, a genus of lizards. And when you go further back, it's referring to snakes. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> the snake snake oil is literally like a, a phrase referring to um, salvation or the anointed savior, if you will, which is what they also call Christ. And he also in the Bible says, you know, be wise as serpents. Uh, another shout out to Dylan Sikosio. Thank you for that knowledge. He laid that one on me in his new book. That's cool. Yeah. Christ also means balm or anoint, anointment oil. Because Christ is the Amrit, right? That drips. Sorry, in yoga, we call it Amrita, or sometimes people call it Soma, but there's an idea that the nectarian goodness flows down from the third eye space and drips down. I was actually in a really interesting training once where someone walked in and they were like, this weird thing's happening to me. And we listened to this man's story and we were all like, you have the Amrit. Like, this is something we've all heard about. But he literally felt like he was drinking a thick, sweet substance all day long. Um, Wow. That's fascinating. Because also, too... I did a presentation recently on the North Star and Aquarius, and I get into the uh, Amrit or Amrita from uh, Vedic mythology. And uh, it's also referred to as the um, like elixir of immortality or something to that effect. And it involves the creation of it involved a giant serpent. (laughs) That was a crucial part of the whole entire story. So it's just kind of coming around full circle. And then uh, I was going to mention in regards to serpent symbolism, I made a video, too, about how there's so much overlapping themes and symbols with uh, serpents, dragons and felines, actually. And so in a lot of ways, they're completely overlapping symbolically. So, you know, they hiss, they have the fangs, you know, uh, the slit eyes, uh, less so dragons, you know, but the serpent feline connection is very strong. And so uh, there's definitely something there with that. Absolutely. It's the connection of. Leo, which is the Christ, which is the balm, right? And Scorpio, which is the raw power that could manifest as the Christ or the the balm, the Leo. Yeah, the line of Judah. Mm -hmm. The fixed signs of the zodiac are all in that ancient esoteric symbolism because of the presumably the way their solstices hit at one point, like that's what the Sphinx riddle is and all of these things. Um, super interesting. I'm going to lay one on you guys too. I found out that the King Cobra, its eyes are not slit pupils like other snakes. And if you look at cats and felines in the world, they have that sort of serpentine reptilian slit pupil, right? Except lions the king of the jungle and the king cobra. Uh, Let me screen share this just to King Cobra. Look at the eyes and the uh, lion. So there's that. I'll go back. Yeah. The wilder one is the serpent. That's interesting. For sure. That is so fascinating. 
Yeah. So, I mean, even you mentioned Leo and we're looking at a line right now, obviously, but even the symbol or the glyph for Leo sometimes looks very serpentine. Right. And it also reminds me, too, of the north and south node symbols as well, which in the Vedic side of things, it's Rahu and Ketu, the head and tail of the dragon or the snake, you know, which I think is fascinating. And then one thing I found that just completely blew my mind was that some cobras on their hood Basically, the design on the hood looks pretty much exactly like uh, the North Node symbol. Interesting. Yeah, so I'll, uh, I can find an image and share that real quick. I've never gotten close enough to a cobra to... You and me both. So, Mario, your North Node makes me think of two ends, which makes me think of snake trails. <laughs> uh, but then also Leo is oil in reverse when you, uh, L, uh, or no, it's an anagram. No, yeah, you can, phonetically, O-E-L is oil, phonetically. That's so cool. And it is, it is, you know, that sign of, because Leo, physically, we say that Leo is housed in the chakra system in the, in the Ajnana doorway there where the Amrit flows from. So that's kind of cool that it's, I love that they're all, it's like they put so many symbols in there so that if you miss 12 of them, you can catch the other 50. (laughs) Yeah. I love the syncretism sacred science thing. It's just the only problem is that (laughs) people have gotten so stuck to like a, uh, applying this version of mythology to fighting over what is historically true or not. And uh, what I'm really starting to believe is that a most societies or cultures that were ever successful encoded their history with astrotheology so that it would be remembered because you would be, and, and then also that throws off like the historical veracity of it too. But then I think that at a certain point, maybe with what we consider the dark ages, the knowledge that was put forth for people in an initiatory process in a certain order got leaked out or in some way uh, corrupted so that the masses got a hold of just like the very first layer of it. And they're like, now we know everything and never went further with it. And thus the world we have today, but let's pull this up, Mario. Nice. So here you can see it's actually the south node uh, in this position, right? But uh, I mean, look how similar that is. I think that's really, really fascinating. The fact that they look, you know, uh, that close to each other. And so I was just cruising for images one day when I was making a video about uh, serpents and lions and, and everything. And when I noticed that, I thought that was a pretty cool sync. So it's sort of upside down because that would be the tail of the dragon, right? <laughs> Symbol for the tail. Yeah. Yeah, 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 right. Exactly. It's like it has... Go ahead, Gabe. Oh, I was going to say, it looks like it has eyes in the back of its head. I know, right? hard, Hard to sneak up on. Yeah. Well, let's transition over into uh, giving people some solstice forecasting. You know, like, uh, what's the space weather in this uh, phase that we're going into right now. Yeah. Where have we come from? Where are we going? Uh, would love to hear you break it all down for us, Emily. And you don't have to be shy about, 
you know, length you know, we want, we want all the gravy. Okay. Okay. So it's solstice. I love the summer solstice. So it's the time when we celebrate the balance of light and darkness, right? And not the balance like we do at the equinox, but like literally the zenith of the light. And so, of course, every solstice, it's a moment where we celebrate the light. And, you know, I'm an astro yoga person. So I always am reminding the yoga students and the yoga teachers that it's literal, right? It's a literal physiological thing. Like our entire bodies are made of light. You could say it's made of vibration or sound. So I'm also a mantra yogi. So I'm tempted to go in the sound way also, but everything is light. Your literal body has come from sunlight, right? Like literally the food you ate has come from sunlight, regardless of if it was an animal that ate food that had been photosynthesized, or at some point somebody ate a plant and now you are in manifest existence. So the summer solstice is really a moment where we are celebrating sort of similar to what we were talking about with the snakes, the raw, potent form, um, which is the thing that we've worshipped as God, right? Because we don't have access to, to seeing the light, which is beyond the light, right? We can see that light. And so it's a really great time to do your sun gazing practice. Although every single day is a really good time to do your sun gazing practice. Um, so it's the solstice. It comes at the start of cancer season, as we've already been talking about. And this one it's coming right around the time of a quarter moon. And then it's heading into a new moon. So cancer is ruled by the moon. Leo is ruled by the sun. I really like cancer season because it's this moment when the sun is very strong and the moon is also very strong. And so about a week into it, we're going to get a new moon at seven degrees cancer conjoining something known as black moon Lilith. I love this because Black Moon Lilith, you guys are probably familiar. I bet maybe you talked about it in your snake show. Um, Black Moon Lilith, sorry, Lilith, who was the name, if you guys ever watched Frasier. Hold on, I got to point out, that's BML, right? Yeah. BML, those are very famous letters these past couple of years. Yeah, BLM, BML. <laughs> oh. Actually, no, and we didn't. We didn't get into Lilith at all uh, in that symbolism. So uh, this is great. Expand on all the things. I'm excited. Well, Lilith, um, which is what they named the character, who's the wife of Fraser. My parents watched that a lot when I was growing up. Um, She is in mythology, this sort of dark feminine figure. Okay, so she represents, and when I'm talking masculine, feminine, I know gender has become a very confusing um, thing to talk about because there's a lot of different worldviews and viewpoints about it. But we're talking about um, not just gender, like you show up and you have a gender identity, but gender, like there's there's an idea in these esoteric symbolisms like externally, we exist in a gender polarity. Internally, we're using gender polarity within ourselves as well, right? And so the feminine aspect of life is that which is manifest and that which has 
power and the physical plane of existence. Whereas the masculine aspect of that consciousness field is something about the raw nature of consciousness itself. And together they, you know, make their magic. So Lilith was the dark aspect of the feminine. So if we're talking about power and manifest existence, we're talking about um, the sort of things that terrify us in reality. Death, birth in a certain sense, right? The blood and guts and potential for death that's looming at every corner, as well as, you know, huge aspects of change and those things that we, that the nice aspect of the feminine, which is a bit more beautiful, like a nice garden, everything's pretty, right? Might not want to go into. And so in mythology, Lilith is the first wife of Adam because manifest reality exists in light and darkness, right? This is the solstice theme. Um, You cannot live in real life and have only pleasant experiences. In fact, if you try to do that, your experience will grow more and more negative, right? Um, By contrast, what these traditions actually teach, and I'm sure Mario is familiar with this because he does the tarot, right? And this is the law of karma um, and the, the balance of action to reaction is that if you try to avoid something, you'll get more of it, right? Whereas if you, if you weight the scale, you'll be able to create a predictable outcome. And so one of the ways that we create enjoyable lives is by courageously and fearlessly looking into the darkness, because that is what catapults us into courage joy and higher states of well-being. So anyway, Black Moon Lilith is a spot in the zodiac which is representing the dark aspect of the feminine. And again, if you're a man, you have the feminine in you. If you're a woman, you have the feminine in you because technically all of us on the scale of consciousness, our consciousness is the masculine aspect our embodied state is the feminine. And so people at this new moon um, might find themselves, I mean, if all goes well, right? Some people will always run from shadow and they might find themselves in one space. But I try to teach people how to engage with it so you can overcome the difficult pieces of astrology so you can get to a happy place. Um, So this new moon will be pretty interesting, I think, because we've been clearing collectively our sacral chakras. Okay, this is coming from the Neptune-Jupiter conjunction that happened in April. The, The sacral chakra actually has to do, in a certain sense, with the spectrum or the polarity of gender within yourself. And this is something I've been talking to a lot of my members about recently. A lot of my students is the idea that, um, and I think you guys have been talking, I think about gender sometimes, or maybe just castration, but there's an idea. Everything's on the table with us. Oh, good. Well, externally, I think society and culture right now has gotten really hot button on issues within people's external relationships, their lovers or their spouses or whomever. Um, And so people you see people talking about attachment styles and, you know, whatever 
you know, stuff that people are discussing and looking at, but there's, and, and people, there's been a sort of revival of people talking about masculinity and femininity in new and different ways. And then, you know, different folks argue with different people and it's, you know, it's the internet and the world of information. But what we're talking about here is something really interesting inside people, which is everybody you know, it manifests differently externally, but inside yourself, you have your masculine and feminine capacities. And this inner polarity, by the way, will manifest in your external relationships. But what you're seeing people realizing, usually about their own external gender first, and then they realize it's within themselves, is that when you make one end of the spectrum healthy, you make the other end of the spectrum healthy. And when you abuse one end of the spectrum, you equally abuse the other end of the spectrum, right? It's just like if one is harmed, the other is harmed because they're interrelated completely. And so this, a lot of this lives in people's second chakras, which is a chakra that has to do with reproduction and pleasure, the interesting thing about the second chakra and these transits is sometimes people skip over the second chakra because we live in a society that doesn't totally value pleasure for no purpose sake. Okay. Let me just interject a really quick thing is uh, I find this most common issue that I find in people's sacral chakra when I'm doing tunings is that they have internalized some belief that blocks them from feeling bodily pleasure. And then that actually just closes off being connected to your body feelings much at all. Yes, exactly. Because people will be like, oh, what's the big deal? It's just pleasure. Like, I don't need that frivolous life. Or at least that's what I've heard from people. And Or it's naughty. Right. And I'm not saying you have to do a particular type of pleasure, but the thing with the second chakra is you have to go through it to get higher and higher. And you have to have a healthy second chakra to access your power center. And so the second chakra, the masculine and feminine polarity in there, if you, if you cut off your ability for pleasure and for enjoyment and for creativity and for you actually accessing that piece of God, which is you, then you enter into depression or anxiety, and you can't escape that level of consciousness to become effective doing other things. And so I think what a lot of people are discovering is that they have in their own inner gender, like regardless of their external relationships, in their relationship with themselves might have been abusing both ends of their spectrum in different ways, abusing the embodied state, which is the feminine end of the spectrum by refusing themselves to take care of themselves, to rest, to give themselves the pleasurable experiences of life that they really would love to be having. Because even though we're all embodied for a reason and we're living our purpose, we're also meant to live, right? And then because they've worked, worked, worked maybe and avoided taking care of themselves, the other end of the spectrum comes up then and abuses the piece of you that really wants to work and get things done and live your purpose and be clear minded by perhaps overindulgence in things that force you to rest like 
illness, substances, TV, I don't know, what, whatever people do to escape. And so there's this, there's been since April, this huge sacral chakra clearing where people are like, Oh, I have purpose and I can take care of myself. Um, and that's, you know, you see that you see a lot of people healing their external relationships because of that as well. But there's this thing inside people that's happening. And so now we're going to have this thing with Blackman Lilith and cancer season, um, as well as with the sun being at the height of its power. And so we see at that new moon, a really interesting thing where the moon and the sun are together with Black Moon Lilith. So we're having both aspects of the feminine, or two of the main aspects, the light and the dark, with the sun and you're seeing fresh energy potentially coming up in there. And so for everybody right now, um, thinking about which state do you abide in? Do you feel healthy and happy and able to relax? Do you feel enthusiastic and clear-minded about your work? And if not, what are you doing? What are you doing in your second chakra? And, you know, what's got you what's got you like scared to be in that? So that's a big piece of this solstice. I see it. I see it as the light coming in to help us clear these sacral chakras more because a lot of people who came into embodiment since the year 1980 or so, and the great, you know, convergence happened um, are beginning or have now stepped into their purpose. And this year there's, there's, there's this ongoing Saturn, Saturn um, Uranus square. That's been, that was really hitting us hard last year. And then it's going to hit us hard again later on this year that has, it's been shredding those things, right? Those things that were like, Oh, that's actually not, me, that was me reacting to a huge pressure I feel to pay my bills or, or whatever, you know, people have experienced and made choices that were less than their highest through those pressures. They're now shredding them. And so a lot of people you'll see beginning to come online, um, beginning to live in their purpose. People who have already been living in their purpose are going to do it in a more real way. Gone are the days of intellectualizing too much astrology, for example, or all of these things, right? And here are the days where all of this theoretical groundwork that's been laid in the last 30 years is beginning to become like earth level, water level, anchored into into this time frame. And there's also a bunch of retrogrades about to happen. <laughs> oh, really? Well, I'd love to get into that too. Let's yeah. first though, my question is, can you suggest any techniques that might help people with the sacral activation that happened in April that we're still going through? Yeah, I can. So the main thing I have been suggesting to people recently is to do mirror gazing. And I don't mean like, don't like look at the mirror and like check your teeth or your hair, but 
one of the issues I think with sacral chakra stuff is there's a people have been trained to maybe not embody their sacral chakras, but rather show them only as performative. So being happy when others are around, right? Who's, who's ever been like really sad and they've gone in public and they've been like, I'm great, right? It's like those things. So going by yourself alone, looking at yourself in the mirror and depending on your polarity that you're working with, you can do both eyes, but look into the eye that matches the spectrum, the side of the gender spectrum that you're working with that day. You can look at both. um, But if you're looking, if you're trying to heal your feminine points of view, so which won't make you feminine if you're a masculine man, right? And it won't make you masculine if you're a feminine woman to look at the others, but look at yourself and see yourself as your, your own lover. And you'll see very clearly the pain and the yearning in either of those eyes. And, um, the left eye again for the feminine side. So again, the piece of you that needs to heal, have pleasure, experience joy in this embodied state, have empathy, right? Connection, love. Um, And then the right side, the piece of you that wants to create something by having a vision, right? And so the two sides of you work together, but you'll see and they'll be equally, if they're hurting, they'll be equally hurt, but they'll be hurting in different, different ways. And so that's what I've been, I've, and I learned that practice a long time ago um, and have found it useful since, since learning it. And I remember when my teachers taught it to me, I was like, this is weird, <laughs> but the, it really is. Does anybody practice this already? I'm curious. No, but I'm interested. And actually, it's kind of fascinating that you bring this up because there's a few people in our community who have been talking about uh, mirror symbolism. And I thought that was timely because of Gemini, you know, Um, and I'm going to be talking about it here in a few days with them to do a follow up mirror episode. And so the fact that you're bringing this into the fold, I think is really, really intriguing. And I'm definitely down. I could see why that would be helpful for sure. I'm seeing some comments too about like avoiding looking in mirrors or seeing distorted faces and it's freaky. Uh, Do you have any comments on that as part of how this practice, you understand it? You might see yourself in different ways. I, I wouldn't, I would do it sober um, without effect, right? Without but you you might the first time I ever spoke to cannabis I just like walked into the bathroom and looked at myself in the mirror and I got stuck there for about 25 minutes looking at myself and like making this crazy face and then laughing and then making a face and then laughing and I was just I was like 17 but (laughs) you might see yourself as a very old person or a very young person you might see your face change you might see your your face change to be more beautiful and then more uh, not beautiful. Um, you might 
see your aura begin to show in different areas and you might see light coming out of you in a weird way. So it's you and other things could happen. I certainly can't suggest to you the full range of things that you could see or hear. Um, But if you spend some time witnessing yourself and you commit also to breathing down into your sacral area, which is just below the belly button and you'll you might and keep breathing even if it starts being painful but sometimes people have things come out of them sometimes nothing will happen you'll stare at your eyes for a couple minutes and you'll be like cool um but sometimes you might have it's it's a powerful practice if you do it in certain ways so i would I would be more careful. I would be careful. So I've had the experience before of, uh, I didn't do it as like a practice, but there've been times in my life where I uh, just looked at myself in the mirror for an extended period of time. And I saw like the sadness that was unconscious that I wasn't processing. And like the more I looked, the more I saw the sadness in my eyes. But this actually helped because it brought what was in the unconscious to consciousness and made me face those type of feelings. And, uh, you know, we're dealing with sacral. This ties into a lot of particular feelings like guilt or shame, which obviously can translate into sadness. In fact, a lot of times sadness is, is almost always connected to something else, whether or you could even say like anger, frustration, or even guilt and shame are offshoots of just sadness in a way. So there's yeah. all that. This stuff really just isn't for the faint of heart either. Like when you do these practices, you'll become aware of more things. And when you're aware of them, you then have a responsibility to act like you're aware of them. And the cool thing is when you do have some sadness or grief or shame come up, if any physical emotion, if you breathe into it, will dissipate in under four minutes, no matter how intense. It might come back if it's a deep grief, um, but the wave won't last if you breathe it. But yeah, there's there's like, like you you might have to do something afterwards. And that can be terrifying. And that's the the point, right? Like what sacral chakra really governs our sense of Mm -hmm. self-worth value. It's um, not exactly the same as self-esteem. Self-esteem is almost like it's related, but it's kind of more up in the solar plexus in my estimation. And this is sort of like where you, Put yourself in relation to others, but self-worth is just like your relationship to you and how you and how you feel about your own value. And self-esteem is kind of like, you know, ranking and authority, that type of idea. So, you know, if it does seem like this is a practice that's like, whoa, no way. <laughs> or in your experience with mirrors, you already are getting freaked out. There may be some healthy uh outcome for you if you face this with the idea in mind face yourself with the idea in mind that your self-worth is what you're working on and go into it with the knowing that 
that self-worth is actually only limited by your belief and by whatever unconscious patterns you've made agreements to hold on to. Because, you know, we, you said it very clearly, we're literally light. We're, <laughs> we're, I, I heard, a, or I read from a, a shaman in a book, a uh, South American shaman, Peruvian, I think, that said something like, the reason why I can shapeshift <laughs> is because I, I know for a fact that I'm no more important or no less important than any other thing including an insect or including the sun. Wow. I love that. Um, Yeah. There's with purification processes, which this isn't necessarily a purification practice, but some of the transits might naturally purify these chakras or if something comes up, it, things naturally purify out on their own when we recognize them. Um, It's a good idea to think less is more, right? Because when things purify, sometimes it just, it might feel like you're in a state of depression or anxiety as it shifts out. And you might even feel things coming up externally that are agitating you. And so um, those states are temporary. So it's good to give it time to clear before you go in for your next, you know, cleansing process with yourself. Um, if you're releasing something that's in that chakra so that you don't overwhelm yourself. I always like to, through. Yeah. I always love to recommend singing and uh, I've always wanted to get into throw singing. I want to get in there like Gordy, uh, but it, it just kind of makes sense because of that sacral, like, uh, when we're doing our morning movement, we, you know, a lot of people sing <laughs> naturally. Uh, so there is, there's like a real primal value to that moving things along. I sing and I make my yoga students talk in class or like make incredibly animalistic sounds. Awesome. <laughs> nice. I'm into it. I often the incorporate note. vocalizations with tuning and I uh, had an interesting one the other day where the client, I happened to know about a particular sort of grief situation for them in terms of a, a lost loved one or friend. And uh, I wasn't thinking about that individual as I was in the third eye. And I was in the zone of the third eye on the side where it pertains to like stuff from the past, thinking about the past. And then this uh, deceased person's face just popped into my mind's eye. And I was like, whoa. And then before I could even like <laughs> mentally react to that, I just saw this person's face in my mind's eye, in my third eye where I was playing the tone. Uh, my voice just started this vocalization on its own. And it was, it just came out of me and I just went with it and let it happen. But it was interesting because usually when I do vocalizations, I like just try to enhance the tone of whatever fork I'm hitting and match that. But this one came out different and it changed as it went. And I was like, the last time I had in uh sort of almost like channeled vocalization like that was years and years ago when I was coming down off of a, a DMT blast off. So it was kind of similar in a weird way. That's awesome. You're leveling up, dude. I can see it. We all can see it. It's great. Um, but I was going to say real quick regarding confidence and self-worth, 
Um, you know, I've heard multiple stories from people who had low self worth for like years and refused to look at themselves in the mirror, you know, like addicts and things of that sort. And they said literally that they avoided mirrors for years and years and years. And it wasn't until they got over the situation and started healing themselves were they actually able to look at themselves in the mirror or look I at almost, a photograph of themselves. I almost said it earlier. I had a two year long aversion to mirrors. Really? Oh yeah. I didn't, I didn't even recognize myself. And was uh, your relationship to the feminine internally and externally in, you know, rough shape? Yeah. The worst, the absolute worst. I also, uh, same time period, like, almost no music uh but uh it was music that brought me back dancing in the mirror again <laughs> but yeah it's rough and you know me uh to some degree it it just seemed like it needed to happen i don't know why i was like answering a very uh i don't know a deep aversion to like facing what i was going to see and being like, okay, I'll face it when I'm ready. Uh, and it did. It took about two years to be like, who's that handsome fucker? <laughs> Big Leo energy. <laughs> uh, uh, Mario, did you have a question? Locked and loaded? Uh, it was just another comment. Um, basically, I was just going to say that, you know, we live in a world where people are doing other people's rituals and spells and using their sigils and charging their magic and things like that, you know. So just the idea of looking at yourself in the mirror as a practice, to me, that's completely sound. And it's just another reminder of the abundance of the universe and that, you know, you have everything already that you need in here. And so I think that's really cool. So you're giving me a lot to chew on with this concept. So thank you, Emily. For sure. I hope you all look at yourself in the mirror tonight. It's nice to say some, you know, I, I have to with this job. I'm like literally looking at myself for hours and hours on end. <laughs> yeah. Although it's not the same as just that in, in, intimate mirror moment. It's not the same as hand on the heart looking at your left eye and you're like, oh my God, <laughs> who is living inside of me? Right. It's, I mean, it's, it transcends you from your body consciousness while holding you in it. Right. It's sort of, and especially if you've, I mean, we've all aged since being babies, obviously, because you don't look like you did as a baby, but if you've aged much since the age when your consciousness has come into your adult form, um, even, even if others are like, Oh, you still look young or whatever you, you can see, the fact that the body changes and the soul remains. And I always think that's pretty cool. I do think that what you say about like transcending body consciousness with the mere exercise, there is really something to that. If you give it, if you really look at yourself and uh, there's this weird experience that's almost ineffable where you're like touching you almost like start to dip your toes into the source pool in a way because that's what you are. That's what's really, that's what you're literally looking at. You're looking at an emanation of source, which is what we all are. Exactly. Right. In, in the tarot, in the lover's card, right? You see that the man is looking at the woman who's looking at the angel, 
which is a depiction of our own consciousness, the three parts of it, how our self-consciousness, the only way to super consciousness is through that aspect of consciousness, which deals with our body, right? So the body is a tool for our self-conscious mind, which is, you know, nuts and like, it's not always nuts, but you know, it's looking at email all day or talking to people or doing whatever, going back to the body as a way to get you to that state of embodied transcendence. I I got a question about the dynamics of the uh, black Lilith moon, BLM, BML. Um, A two part question. One is, is that going to occur in 14 days from now? And also what relationship does this Lilith thing have on this, on the Zodiac? Is it 180 degrees from us or, uh, how does it roll? How do we roll into this Lilith moon relationship? So it's, it's been at like six degrees cancer for a long time. So if you have a, and I think it'll be at seven degrees cancer at that point. So it just so happens. It's not like, it's not like Rahu and Kitu, which are mathematical points. Right. And in the, in the crossing of the sun and moon, it's, it's a, it's just there. It's just there. It just so happens that this is a weird, not a weird, sort of weird, just an interesting moon. I'm actually very curious about yeah. it in many ways. Um, but also the the fact of the matter with Black Moon Lilith is we like there are real things in life that are scary and people experience that a lot during eclipse season when they're like, Oh, I thought astrology was fun, but then coinciding with this eclipse, this thing happened and like their, their heart is broken in some way they're in grief, they're in pain. Right. And that's, I mean, that's, it doesn't mean that you'll be in grief or pain at a particular moon, but grief and pain is a, piece of life and so there will be astrology in your life that aligns with moments of deep grief and pain and suffering and so um, not to say that this necessarily manifests that way because things can manifest on any level they could manifest physically emotionally spiritually um, psychosomatically many ways right there are many planes of existence and they don't have to manifest physically But if you try to avoid their manifestation physically at all costs, you know, it might it might not be good. So so sometimes with like the black moon Lilith being present, we're actually faced with something that forces us to say like, oh, this is real life. It was all fun and games, right? Tracking your moon cycle until you realize um, and this is a, a contemplation I've heard a lot of uh, people, women who have had babies say is that upon the act of giving birth, they realize that they have just sentenced a being to death. Very insightful mothers. The first time I heard that, I was like, whoa. That really yeah. reminds me of That's other aspects of dark goddess uh, culture of the past, which is that in cults where 
sacrifice or even human sacrifice or child sacrifice was the norm of which there are many, there are many that the goddess had the, had all the right in the world to demand that sacrifice because the baby or the human or the animal, whatever it was came from her and it was hers to take back if she wanted, or if it was demanded. And then the other thing that I'm tripping on right now is like, I wonder what the origin of Black Moon Lilith is in terms of an explanation in a pre-globe conception, because it's the apogee of the moon is how it's explained now astronomically, meaning the furthest point from the earth, as Kaylee's saying in the chat here. Uh, You know, and in previous conceptions and some people's current conception or cosmology of the realm, uh, the moon isn't really getting further away from the earth per se. If it's, you know, so I'm wondering like what, where did this idea came from? Or if it was just more tied to the idea of like the, the full moon or not full moon. Do you have any uh, info on the origin of it as an astrological or astronomical idea before uh, modern, modern beliefs? So Lilith, there's like a couple different Liliths in astrology that you'll find and come across. And sometimes this can be a cause of deep confusion for people, right? Because they're like, is it the asteroid one or the mathematical point? And even I'm like sitting here sometimes and I'm like, I can't remember all of this. I just read the charts and I talk to the people. Um, So I understand like it can be, it can be a lot. Um, The mythology of Lilith though goes back a long time. I'm not 100% sure on this astrology history because I'm not always sure about everything. But I'm guessing because of the upsurgence in the 1970s of feminine-centered astrology, right, where they were naming the asteroids after the goddesses, Um I think that that's probably when that grew in popularity in a similar time frame to as the Plutonian and evolutionary astrologers started taking on people started moving because there was that thing in the seventies where people started moving into a state of not just using astrology to be like, this is when you'll get a job and this is when you'll get married, right? That used to be more, well, that and then the secret astrology where you were like, this is when we'll take over this other nation for politics, right? That was a lot of what astrology was. But in the 70s, people really started reading it in a, I'm not going to say a more sophisticated way because the ancient astrologers were incredibly sophisticated, but it grew in popularity to understand yourself um, psychologically, right? And people, and so we had like more Jungian analysis and maybe even this stems back to the first sort of upsurgence of this in the modern age in the 1920s, right? Because the tarot and the study of tarot is also a window into this is what is the path of consciousness on the path of return that can lead us to ourselves. And so people used to think about the moon and Venus as the two feminine aspects of astrology, and they are the primary two. But there were all these other 
gods, right, as the aspects of consciousness on the masculine end of the spectrum, which represented these things. And so they were really looking at the phases of the moon as being representative of the many faces of the goddess because she was changing, right? So in a way, it was already sort of even if you think about the moon as being like 28 characters um, or eight or 13 or however many you want to think about. Yeah, to interject there, I mean, just the fact that they're naming asteroids and everything after goddesses and the way that's all turned out, it uh, to me just demonstrates the point conclusively that when I talk about the fact that Mercury, Mars, Saturn, Kronos, all these are names that were originally attributed, attributed to the sun and then given to the other luminaries. We see it in our modern age already. There are the Hera was or whatever Hera wasn't uh, an asteroid. You know, Ceres wasn't an asteroid, but now that's what they're called. They're assigned to a different luminary. And I think I don't, I can't say for sure, but I think it's either just the knowledge getting kind of corrupted by people who don't understand the astrotheology or it is intentional concealment by those who make the choices to name the things. Well, the asteroid goddesses are actually very well established. So I I would argue a little bit with that. I wouldn't say that's corruption because um, there's a huge body of work on them. There's a lot of misunderstanding, right? Like if you go look up certain ones, like if you go look up black, like Lilith, you're going to get a bunch of internet mumbo jumbo, but but if you if you go to the right places and to the right people, you're going to come up, you're going to see something else. So it's not that they're replacing the moon or something, but it is that they were um, in the same way. And it's interesting. I actually wonder if the ancient astrologers knew about these because there's evidence that the ancient astrologers knew about Uranus, Neptune and Pluto, which supposedly were discovered right post what 1930 so there's there's some interesting things there though that like probably the founding fathers knew what pluto was did they i don't know i suspect i suspect they did i think we have known about them and then it's been lost in certain cultures uh i think it's like a I think we've known about them and forgot about them or they've been hidden or covered up. But yeah, I've often thought of that. Yeah, but it's it's difficult to it's difficult to discredit some of those things because you do see significant bodies of work upon them that are quite compelling. And so I would I would and and actually one of them. Um, one of the astrologers who wrote like a bunch of the books on the topic actually lives in my town. I learned one day, I was like, oh, you live here too. Um, but, um, but there is, there is like quite a lot, quite a lot out there on them. And so I don't know the asteroids, I read them from time to time. I usually don't read them too deeply unless if they are in a particular point in someone's chart or if they're directly pertainable, but sometimes you do get people, for example, people talk about Mars energy as being warrior energy a lot. Um, And I really think Pallas Athena, which is the feminine principle of the warrior energy, which is the, the urge to protect 
using the force of wisdom um, added a lot. It adds a lot to readings and, and it seems to be accurate, at least in the charts I've read with people. I have a tripped out thought, <laughs> you know, there's this awesome comment from cozy crone. Isn't it weird how we give the planets their names and their stories, but then we say that they're writing our story. And I wonder that all the time, like does the mythology we apply to the sky clock actually influence the way that our lives develop? Because I say that because I do this. I know I bring everything back to tuning, but <laughs> the the tuning process I do could be completely, I consider it to be completely conceptual uh, and not necessarily concrete. And I think that like any other language, once you have the language, it becomes the operating system and it's useful if it's a good operating system. So Mike, I, I, do you kind of see where I'm getting at here? Like, do you think maybe there's, it's, it's one of those questions. It's like chicken or the egg, right? Sort of. Yeah. So I hear what you're saying. And with the exception of like seasons, I don't think that could we really control the seasons with our thoughts? I don't think so. We it's interesting because according to these traditions, we control nothing. There's a force, which is the one force in the universe, which is coming through us. And we, through an act of mystical concealment, okay, known as different things in different systems, um, have forgotten that our agency is a derivative of the one agency. And so we think we have individuated thoughts and feelings and things, but without the life force that sustains us, nothing would happen. And so we actually... And then then you can argue about like, what's free will, what's not? But it sort of doesn't matter because within where we are, it appears to us as free will and our own agency. And we think, did this get made up by this person? And certainly in the manifest world, there's light and darkness. And some things are happening that are tricking us, right? That are lies, that aren't true, that are inversions of good things. But when you're aligned, and this is what I mean, not to get all biblical on you, but you you see a lot in the Bible about this, right? Um, or in the Yoga Sutras, um, Ishvana Pranidhana, surrender to God. People say the Lord's Prayer like it's nothing in churches, right? But they say, um, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are they talking about? What is heaven? Well, it's the sky. So basically, like a lot of these things are talking about lining up with the sky clock, the way the way the sky clock's going. And the thing is, because everything that exists is present in every single other thing, right? Which is why humanity heals together, right? And all these things, the earth heals with humanity, things like that. Um, because everything's present in every other thing, it's not that external Jupiter that you can see sometimes in the sky is controlling you. It's that internal Jupiter, which moves at the same pace as external Jupiter is urging you forward. And so I don't know if that 
adds anything to your question. No, no, I kind of see it the same way, actually. I do. And that even whenever we attribute things to nature in the form of how we describe the luminaries and their influence, what ends up becoming the accepted mythology of a culture that then transmits across time and continues to have this strange mystical accuracy could be the reason that it even got to that level of aware of collective consciousness being aware of it in that sense is the logos dictating that to us through us in the, exactly like what you're saying. I totally feel that because again, back to tuning, <laughs> it's a flow state thing where I'm just like doing things and I don't know that I know, but then I give someone like, the lowdown after I've done the process and tell them, okay, I found this, this, and this. And they're like, that's my life story. Right. And I didn't know that about them. So it's kind of the same. It's like the microcosm of the macro. This is awesome. I love this conversation. It's really cool. Uh, there's a few threads I want to pull out right now. And one of them, uh, what you just said, uh, you don't know that, you know, sort of thing. There's this idea that when we incarnate here, that we get amnesia. And uh, symbolically, I've read myths where you're actually given some sort of drink that gives you this amnesia. And this has actually been related to cancer and the chalice that kind of symbolically uh, is associated with cups. And I think of the craters on the moon and the receptivity of the moon, the crescent of the moon that contains, you know, and then also uh, our mothers, right? Symbolically, kind of embody the moon right when they're pregnant and so there's a lot of older cultures come again cancer rules the breasts which you there you go 100 percent, exactly right for sure and so uh there was a lot of cultures including the babylonians that believe that we come through cancer which would be called the gateway of man and then we exit through capricorn which would be the gateway of the gods and i think it's fascinating what you said earlier regarding um, these mothers who just had children signing their kids up to death once they're born, you know, that's going to be their life sentence, if you will, at some point, eventually, as it is with all of us. Um, And the moon corresponds with the chariot card. And one of the esoteric meanings behind the chariot or the meaning of of the chariot itself and this card um, goes back to this saying that kind of summarizes it for me. And it's this idea that, um, the path of the chariot is death itself. And so this was a common association back in the day that the path of the chariot is going to lead you to death ultimately. And so it just kind of ties in with all this stuff with birth and death and reincarnation and everything else. But uh, yeah, I just thought I had to throw all of that out there. It's like a chariot can only drive on a road, right? And that's the road we're on. (laughs) All roads lead to the same place. I got to throw some placenta in on this. So in the sign of cancer, the minor decand is Argus. And Argus is the ship. It's the vessel. It's the the placenta. It's the sail that pushes your will (laughs) forward. But it's very beautiful that that cancer is associated with the breasts. Because I am of the belief that if the mother eats the placenta, there is benefits for everybody abound. Uh, So that's really beautiful uh, because Argus, the constellation, also lines up with the breasts. Interesting, too, that uh, in Sanskrit, which is in a lot of places pronounced Sanskrit, (laughs) like the sun, Arga or Argha is 
the sun. And then in French, actually, the word Argao, which is spelled like are very close to Argus, it represents the a secret coded language. It's a word for like, you know, <laughs> the kind of the kind of green language that we get into. Yes, sir. Oh, go ahead. Oh, and Sanskrit is made of the Matrika Malini, right? They don't call it an alphabet because it's not an alpha beta, right? It's it's the Matrika Malini, which means the string of little mothers. That is interesting. And then, you know, Argus is very close to Arcus. I mean, the C and the G, that sound is very interchangeable between languages and dialects, that hard C sound versus the G. Uh, Arcus is a vessel in Latin, um, an arc. That's where we get the word Noah's Ark, right? It's also a ruler. It's also a bow, interestingly. Right. It has all those meanings associated with it. I think of Arctos, Arctic, right? Antarctic, uh, where we come from and return to the North. Right. And, uh, that's something I get into in a lot of my work, but, uh, right. yeah, AR super interesting combination of letters there. And the Arctic is where our material archons presume to have access and not allow anybody else to go to. So that is very interesting. Well, they go further. You said the AR is fascinating, but philologically, you can link the R sound. <laughs> I'm not talking about pirates, although there is another symbolic link there, too, if we wanted to go there with the or R or R like the words aura have that and uh, or like gold or like the sun. Um, yeah, exactly. Dude. To pull on there. No, no, you, you totally got it. And then also Ur as in Ursa major, Ursa minor as in earth, as in at the end of so many millions of words, her brother, mother, father. My understanding is that Ur uh, a lot of times represents the origin of something, the beginning of something. So I'm always looking out for it. Placenta. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it always comes back to that. So uh, one thought I, I had to write notes because I've got like this uh, black moon Lilith thing on my mind. Uh, and just like, a, I'm just going to rant a bunch of things that have come to my mind while we were talking about it. And these are all mundane things. These are not like for interpersonal development. This is like things of the world that I could see coming up. The, my first thought was the queen. Of course, you know, we're all, we all know she's Biden. She's Biden her time here. <laughs> but uh, I think about um, the abortion issue because we are talking about placenta. We are talking about vessels and cups, uh, the moon. Uh, I think about Kamala Harris for the strangest reason. Because she's the vice president, that's a that's a vicar or a cup, a vase, a chalice, all very Cancerian. I believe she's a Leo, though. Um, and then uh, apogee, like when Kaylee mentioned that this is the apogee of the moon, that sent my imagination in all kinds of directions. I think of the page, uh, but I also think of um, PG&E, the electric company. Uh, that wouldn't that be wild if they kind of popped in on the scene uh, here in the next couple of weeks? But 
so it's basically starting now and going for about a week. Is that what you're, is that how it works? Well, the solstice is next Tuesday. We just had the full moon. The black moon Lilith thing is a new moon. So that's going to be the next cycle there. Um, And moons can potentially affect you for up to 13 months. So we'll see. We'll see what happens to people in the next 13 months. I got to just point out the uh, the great thing JLo pointed out that the R is also raw because there is, you got to always look at forwards and backwards with these languages. <laughs> nice, uh, and there, nice. There's a reason for that because, uh, you know, culture might pick up its symbolism from another culture, but then they prefer to do language from right to left or left to right. And so that's all over the place. The, uh, backwards and forwards encoding of things. So raw, obviously the sun are, or I would love to um, also, when I'm done, like really digging through the amazing work in uh, Dylan's newest book, spirit world, a God's acre for the winds of the soul. There's a whole chapter on Ohm <laughs> and how Ohm nice. uh all the different philological connections to Ohm and the sun and all the different mythologies of the world. It is super good. Very cool. Um, Emily. So I was going to ask you, Lilith, do you see her anywhere in the tarot? Is she in multiple cards? Is there one that corresponds with her more than the others? Do you have any thoughts on that by chance? You know, there's no, to my knowledge, direct, because like the tarot is laid out astrologically. So there's no like direct Black Moon Lilith tarot association because she's not one of the major points. Just just like there aren't with some of, you know, many of the other things. But I do see that energy as being like the energy in the death card. Um, the energy of any time the two or three energy, Venus and the moon, goes awry, right? Because, you know, from the high priestess card, she's sitting there and she's passively waiting to see what's happening, right? And she's then, once she's imbued with what's happening, right, the the magician one plus two equals three, then we get Venus, right? The act of desire. And and the Empress card, which is the Venus card, shows us what happens when that goes well. When we have rightly used the Magician card to align our will with the one will, right? What it doesn't show in the picture is what would happen if we didn't do that very well, right? And so, which would be a really scary card to look at. <laughs> And so that's when I would see that coming up is when you use, because the tarot is always showing us the right path, right? The tarot is the right path. Um, So it's trying to show us the highest, but those same principles that are shown in the tarot are also at play in the world that's creating darkness. It's just, you don't want to do that. You know, it's interesting you say that. Uh, I I put the devil card underneath 
the high priestess in Capricorn there. So like you, I'm imagining going from two to three up to the Empress if things go well, but I'm thinking maybe that devil card underneath is if things go bad. The devil card, yeah, is the shadow of the lovers too, right? So we have, we have this idea of the entrapment that we've created for ourselves. So yeah, after, I mean, the lovers card kind of shows us how to convince the high priestess and the empress to birth our ideas, right? It's it's refining in a certain way those those forms as it's giving us instruction in the methodology for instruction to our subconscious principles of the body, the feminine aspect of the body. And so the devil is what happens when those are inverted and it's so similar to the lovers in that way. So I think you're I think you're on to it. Yeah. I I can't help it. I just looked at like what Black Moon Lilith represents for <laughs> where it's at in my chart, which is a Libra. Oh man, it hits too close to home. <laughs> uh, you are fascinated by relationships, but are often un- unsuccessful in this area. Things start out well, but they come to an end before time. In other cases, you fall in love with people who are for some reason unavailable. <laughs> just like, ah, okay. I can not beat myself up too much over particular patterns. It's just, you know, it's in the stars. You're living your chart. (laughs) What'd you say, Emily? Since software astrology is harsh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So um, I'm not sure if you guys are aware, but there's actually a lot of interesting things about Lilith. Um, She is kind of, she's been represented in many different ways. And so if you just Google Lilith, you'll see a woman combing her hair, looking in the mirror, back to mirror symbolism, you know, and then you'll also see like demonic, monstrous Lilith uh, versions, right? And so there's this whole spectrum of Lilith symbolism, and she's a vampire and like a succubus, and she's a monster. Some people connect her with Tiamat and all these different things, right? But uh, one of the things I found really interesting, because I was looking into Lilith not that long ago, maybe like a week ago, is that I believe the reason why there was a split with her and Adam was that um, it had to do with uh, the position of their intercourse and so she wanted to be on top and he wanted to be on top and so he wasn't having it and so that was like the beginning of their split because she wanted to be in the dominant position right and so the fact that she has red hair here and you see this serpent around her i believe that there's groups that uh revere her and i think that actually in some esoteric decks like the thoth deck i think she lines up really nicely with the lust card and so after a chance is done here, uh, I can show that. So that would be strength in certain cards. But you'll see the similarities uh, once I pull it up right here. And I'm not sure if you've ever looked into this deck, Emily. But there is some intriguing stuff the going on deck. here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so this is the golden woman, right? Riding a lion. And it's always seven headed. So this uh, is a reference to um, the whore of Babylon. And she typically is holding a chalice of filth and of abominations. This is very close to Tiamat or uh, Angerboda in uh, Norse mythology, giving birth to all of these monstrosities. 
And then here you can see that the tail turns into, it's like a serpentine lion. And then, of course, uh, here we have Teth, which is symbolic of the serpent, right, in Hebrew. And then you've got the Leo correspondence. And so I'm not sure if that does anything for you, but I kind of think that maybe there's an aspect of Lilith here uh, in this particular version of the Lust card. Maybe. So the Thoth deck, I mean, I believe you because, I mean, that's the strength card in the other decks, right? And of course, um, Aleister Crowley, who is behind the Thoth deck, had such, had some different opinions about what needed to go in and also was on presumably a path that might not have been fully in the light, right? You read his writings and he says some very disturbing things about children and and many, many topics where you're like, oh, this guy seems like he was in the evil shit, probably. Um, the magic is in the butt. That's the main lesson with Aleister Crowley. <laughs> That's his yeah, catchphrase. <laughs> yeah, like, like I don't know. I had, a, I had a weird experience. I found in my parents' house a book of... Um, a book by the Black Pope, right, which is the Satanist Pope that just they just happen. They have a lot of books on all the religions. And so <laughs> I was like, this is a weird book. And I was like, oh, it's like literally weird. And you could feel that the book was evil. Like if you pick it up, I was like this book and not because I was scared of the subject matter necessarily, but because you were like, this is like people hurting each other, like how to hurt and how to invert truth. And I don't know much about Aleister Crowley. I know that he had divergent opinions with some of my um, schools of thought. And I know that some of the things I've read from his pen have been alarming, but the thought deck is super interesting and it's very raw and very powerful. And so I like that because in in the strength card and other decks, it's the depiction of the right use of the Kundalini force rising up and the full alignment at that point of the body and the power. But many people, many people go to yoga and they're like, I just want to raise my Kundalini. And then they artificially raise it and don't integrate it. And then crazy things happen to them. Right. And they need to, go to a, a someone or other to fix the crazy things that are happening to them. And so that card to me, I'm like, that's that. That's what I see is I see that experience of consciousness boom, booming out and destroying you. <laughs> I gotcha. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, no, there's so many things going on. I don't, I, I can't even claim to know who he really was, honestly. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm at with it. I just know there's all of these artifacts and books and everything else uh, that some of it's intriguing, some of it's not, you know. You know, yeah, that's the, the, heck, the really crazy stuff about Crowley is like some of the writing is really profound mm -hmm. and helpful. And then others, like you said, we get into this dark side of alchemy and uh, the kid stuff and the butt stuff. And then the stories we get about his life story, who knows what is and isn't true. It's all really weird. A so, lot of, oh, oh, go ahead. Oh, just a lot of people 
they get into spirituality and they get excited about it and they gain some spiritual power. And then upon having that power, don't have the discipline to contain it and use it for ill. So, and there are writings from Crowley, which are intact and profound and good. And then there are writings which are disturbing and dark. Right. And so you see this a lot. You see it in yoga all like all the time. Somebody is like a great yoga teacher. They have profound yoga teachings, but they're not maybe at the highest level. And they start getting admiration of their, you know, attractive young students and something, you know, goes down. Um, that's a repeatable story. Just with countless times. Yeah, exactly. So, so maybe something like that is he realized well, I can do whatever I want and I have all this power and I'm in these secret societies and now, you know, but who knows? That's just all. But that's what I, in my head, that's the story I tell myself in my head. Because uh, Lilith, like she became like a, um, in a way, like an alternative counterculture icon and like is a symbolic of like uh, sexual liberation and things of that sort, right? Yeah, Lilith and Hecate both are these goddess figures that some people have really gravitated toward. Um, and, and, you know, maybe not wrongly, like we all people, people gravitated toward Hades and Pluto too, to be like, oh, there's this, like, because we're scared of our darkness. And so doing things like that, pulling them in, dressing up like them, painting them, doing whatever, um, having, I mean, that's what Halloween is for too. And Dia de los Muertos and all of these, um, you know, totem fest holidays is not just remembering the dead, but embodying what is transgressive or fear provoking. Right. So, and Although sometimes in this modern world, like I have a pink sweater on, sometimes I feel like it's transgressive to (laughs) wear pink. People are like, you're an adult. (laughs) I think it's lovely, personally. (laughs) I like that association of transgression and Hecate. That's that's an interesting thing. I'm going to think about that a lot because she's like the guardian of the the boundary between civilization and the wilderness right i think yeah. they would have she would also be um related to crossroads as well mm-hmm. yeah she rules over the crossroads on the way to the underworld she's the one who goes in the persephone tale to tell the mother persephone also has a dark we always hear about persephone being kidnapped and she's so pretty and all that stuff but in a lot of her other stuff, she's this like powerful goddess of the underworld too. And so I always like her as an example because she's an example of what happens when you're not forced to be in an eternal springtime, you know, which our culture likes eternal springtime. We're like, look like you're 20 until you're 90 (laughs) or else. Right. Um, or not be scared to go back into the springtime after being in the underworld for so long. And it's so easy as humans to get stuck in one, especially on a spiritual path, to get into love and light or to get into shadow work, 
light worker, shadow worker. How often have you heard someone say that? And instead say, no, I'm going to be an integrative being. So uh, one thing that just came to mind is um, the fact that there is a connection, right, with Lilith and the lily um, etymologically. And it's really interesting because I came across lily symbolism when I was studying Virgo. And uh, sometimes Lilith is associated or sorry, the lily is associated with self-insemination of these goddesses that actually created children on their own and there's paintings where like mary is given a flower and sometimes it's a lily there's several myths where a woman is given the flower and then that is actually the conduit for them to actually have this immaculate conception if you will so i'm not sure if that has anything to do with lilith per se but i think that's intriguing that That makes me now think about the etymology um and all the different gods that are in some way related to a trinity or a, a, an immaculate conception that get associated with black blackness, like black moon Lilith. <laughs> I mean, even, I mean, there's a huge etymological link between the word Christ and Krishna and Krishna or Krishna means black, right? Dude, you totally got it, man. Exactly right. That's why it came up during Virgo because when you start looking into Virgo symbolism, you get, pulled into veil symbolism the veil is like a huge part of virgo and so it's the veiled uh woman or the veiled goddess or what have you it's related to the burqa you know um and the the hijab and everything else and so that is that blackness is this veil it's this idea that there's a light contained within the divine feminine or within virgo and to me it's symbolic of uh the light contained within the great goddess that is basically masculine energy that she created her own counterpart. So when these women receive that flower, oftentimes they give birth to a male. So they're actually giving birth to their other half. And when you take it way, way back, you're actually talking about an original goddess. And she was the only one that ever existed until she gave birth to the masculine energy. And so this is kind of symbolic too, of like Sophia and the Demiurge, you know, I have a couple thoughts on that. Those are great thoughts. You guys, um, to First, take it back to the snake of it all, we'll just point out that Sophia encodes Ophis, which is a word for snake. Yeah. So I always learned, like, I remember singing some song with the lily in your hand, I leave you, oh, my night love, right? This is like, lily is also the flower of death that you take to the funeral. Um, so I, that's interesting that you're thinking of it as immaculate conception. Also with Virgo, Uh, One of the things with Immaculate Conception that's encoded in Virgo is not just the like literal like I'm birthing a child and maybe it's the sun and there's all that cool stuff that happens at the winter solstice with the sun lining up with Virgo and, you know, in the manger, right, where the goat lives and all that stuff. But like blah, 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 Christmas time stuff. But for Virgo and the Immaculate Conception, one of the things in medical astrology that Virgo points to is the cave of bread in the body because Virgo rules the intestine. And one of the things that they teach in some of these traditions is the fact that if you want to reach enlightenment, what happens first 
or simultaneously is a literal physiological change in your body, a virgin birth, if you will, that comes from something inside you which is untouched by the outside world, like literally in your intestines, the, the chyme changes, not the chyme doesn't change exactly, but maybe a little bit, but what changes is your ability to absorb particular nutrients and it you through your practices have a virgin birth that changes your blood chemistry, which is why Virgo rules health as well. Right. Nice. I love that. Dude, I love this whole thread. Honestly, it's so fascinating because I'm of the opinion. There's this podcast that I listen to. I'm pretty sure it's the guy who wrote the Montauk project books. I think uh, Peter Moon might be his name. And uh, he was going on about virgin birth symbolism in a show. And I don't know if he actually ended up writing a book about it or what have you. But he was of the opinion that virgin birth is an esoteric occulted secret and that it actually still happens. Uh, but he, 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 I think he theorizes that it used to happen way more back in the day. So for whatever that's worth, I, I'm going to throw that out there. So there's a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, you know, Anakin Skywalker's mom had a virgin birth. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Proof that it happens. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's the symbolic component, but then there's potentially an actual literal uh, component as well here. Uh, I'm wondering, Emily, since you do have a lot of knowledge on the uh, side with the Indian mythologies. Is there a correlation here? Yeah, well, Skywalker actually refers to, I think, the Kachari Mudra, which is like it's Skywalker is a translation of something in, in yoga. Um, it might not be Kachari Mudra. It's something. Skywalker refers to something in um, there's, a, there's a skywalking aspect of Tantra. So that that's, or or do you mean with the virgin birth? There are yeah yeah the virgin birth. But now you got me googling Skywalker movie. I'm like, I'm like <laughs> let's talk about Star Wars. Um, yeah, there are a lot of virgin births. I mean, Parvati gives birth to Ganesha by shredding some skin off of her because she needs someone to guard the door while she takes a bath. At the time, he's a little boy, and then Shiva comes back and cuts off his head, and you know, then he becomes the elephant. But well, the half and half um but that's a virgin birth like i think there are probably more than i will naturally think of right away because there are so many myths for these characters over and over and over but when you were talking about the original goddess who birthed the word the world there are there are symbols of that and of course in the system i study it's it's a Shiva Shakta tradition. So the highest tattva is the Hridaya, which means the great heart. And then it splits into, into the masculine, feminine, the Shiva and the Shakti, the consciousness and the power or, you know, all the things that they are. But, but there are myths of like, um, is it Bhumaneshwari? who's like this giant goddess who holds sort of the universe. And there's also myths of um, Sri Paravach, 
right? Who is the supreme essence of the visioning word. So like before, before sound has any sound, it's like her utterance. And this is for like a myth that's based in mantra yoga where everything is sound. Like she is the initial impulse, which, um, from which births reality, because there is that idea that it, the feminine principle births the reality. And so, you know, is it is it a virgin birth? Or is it just them, you know, doing what they do and their and reality just comes out of them because it's part of their dance of life and consciousness? You'd have to you'd have to argue it with the <laughs> the people who are smarter at Sanskrit than me, but there's a lot there. It makes me think of unleavened bread. What you said earlier about the intestines and the subtle change mm. uh, made me think of the unleavened bread. That's interesting because Virgo is called the house of bread, which is what Bethlehem is, right? Bethlehem. Beth, the house. I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And she, uh, so it's interesting going back to the uh, Lily thing in some older versions of Virgo, she's actually holding that Lily. And then sometimes, right. She's holding uh wheat as well. And I believe there's probably one or two other plants that she's holding uh, too. A lot of people buy lilies at mother's day too. I was noticing I bought tons oh. of lilies mother's day. My house was covered in lilies. <laughs> Nice, nice. Yeah, they're beautiful. <laughs> I love them. They're really cool. So I have a Parvati poem. Do you guys want to hear it? Yes, definitely. Absolutely. This was written in Florida. I was helping a friend clean up after a hurricane, and I did some micro dosing, sit next to his pool all alone in the middle of the night. And I was having hardcore Parvati visions. It was really a very charming evening. <clears throat> it's called Parvati's Grotto. Hovering above bare bathing bosom of Shiva's bride on foggy mountaintop in deep mystic garden. The thunderous trunk of Ganesha stands heedful. Across ample bodies of blessed plasma, Prana caresses the dreadlocks of Parvati. As eddies pulsate benevolent lightning throughout bioluminescent lingam pools, her lumbering stoic tusked protector conceals radiant idol of earth-moving ivory behind his massive leaf-like weathered ears. Off the opulent surface of her primordial sacred lagoon, green droplets spawn skyward, exchanging multiplicative pleasantries. Wind-bending tendrils ascend the statuesque leg of vanguard demigod as his trumpet cascades a harboring cloud bank 
to safeguard her sanctuary so that short-lived man may be spared the insinuating light of unconditional woman. Beautiful. Good work, That's- man. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> yeah, it was a lovely, lovely night. I swear. I think I saw her a few times in that water. <laughs> you know, one thing that's interesting, you brought up microdosing. Um, I wasn't microdosing, <laughs> but there was a time where I don't know how else to describe it. I've brought it up before where I had like this spontaneous psychedelic experience take over my life for a day. And uh, it was kind of like, you know, a really intense psychedelic trip, really, but I wasn't on anything. And during that, when I closed my eyes, all I would see were these two goddesses that were like dancing and weaving, but they were like made of golden points of light and green points of light. There are two, two of them. They were each that color. There's kind of like a pointillism or a, a constellation, but that was emerging. Uh, uh, the figure of a goddess was emerging out of these points of light. It's hard to describe. Cool. It's like some kind of temporary samadhi of some kind. I don't know how else to describe it. That's awesome. <laughs> we used to call those flashbacks back in the day. I haven't <laughs> done very many psychedelics. I don't think I've done enough to get flashbacks, but I don't know. Maybe. That's funny. So, uh, you know, I had one topic that I, I don't know how much this will or won't get us into, but. For some reason, it keeps popping up into my mind to ask you if there are any Atlantean ideas, maybe not by that very name, but in the Hindu mythologies, is it Atlantis or something like that um, like evident? I mean, with Atlantis, I always think about the flood. Right. And. Atlantis is tricky because there's also this idea that there were multiple sophisticated civilizations that simultaneously disappeared and seemed to leave Earth, right? So then we could talk about certain peoples who originated yogic tradition as well as Egyptian tradition and, you know, all the different places. But um, similarly, I think a lot of people think the Noah's Ark story is Atlantean in a certain sense. There is in every culture, the story of the flood. So one of the forms, so Vishnu incarnates in different forms. Some people think maybe Christ was a Vishnu incarnation. Some ding, people- ding, ding. Yeah, like Vishnu, V is phonetically mirrored to F. He's literally Vishnu. <laughs> yes, exactly. Nice. Um, and yeah, so he comes as the great fish in one of his incarnations, right? Um, an earlier incarnation that would align with about the time of the, um, right? Krishna is like a later, later, later than the fish. Um, so one of the incarnations, I actually have a painting in my living room or a drawing, an ink drawing that I bought in India of Vishnu as the fish. Um, Cause 20 year old me was like, cool mermaid. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Um, yeah. I also accidentally bought a fertility painting. <laughs> they were like, um, I know lots of things, but lots of things as an ignorant 20 year old. Um, but, but there, there is this great myth of him being in that. And there's also the myth of the churning of the ocean of consciousness and the idea that we are the waves upon a wave upon the ocean of consciousness rising for a time and then dissipating. And there's this idea of the churning of the ocean when the ocean turns to poison and they're trying to get the nectar out, which is actually where one of the origin myths of Lakshmi, there's a virgin birth. There's also, I mean, Kali is a virgin birth too, right? She springs out of the third eye of Durga. Technically, Athena is a virgin birth out of Zeus. I mean, not virgin, but, you know, immaculate without. I'm not saying they, those gods all get it on. I think at different points, they're all every which way. Um, I lost my train of thought, but I would, I would, I would track the Atlantean myth or at least compare it against um, Vishnu in the form of the fish and maybe the ocean of consciousness stories. Although I think you have to be careful with too many oceanic metaphors all being Atlantean because Atlantis is specifically lost in a flood, but I think the flood ones track pretty well. It's interesting. Another character who's lost uh, on the waters was Jonah and (laughs) Jonah. Jonah is a weird one. First of all, it sounds like if you give it the soft J, it sounds like Yona. And then we're getting really close to the Yoni symbolism with that. But on top of that, it's an anagram, a near anagram for Noah, Jonah and Noah. I think about Jonah and Noah all the time, actually, um, because Noah is a drunk. And because Jonah, right, he's supposed to go to Nineveh and tell the people to change their ways. Um, he refuses, and that's why he gets eaten by the fish and then spat back up so that he can go to Nineveh, tell the thing, and then die, right? He dies watching his own failure. And I always think about those stories because <laughs> in sort of a dark way, I'm like, God uses imperfect people. That's the, like, Noah is like passed out drunk at some point, right? And I think a lot of people in the modern day worry about their, I'm not saying like everyone should go get drunk or something like that's not it. But um, I think sometimes people are like, oh, I'm worried that I'm not good enough to do this thing I feel called to do. Um, But I always think about them (laughs) being like, and like Jonah just straight up running away. So I don't know too much about them, but I would love to hear your input um, regarding the seven rishis. Is is that something that you've looked much into or has that come across your radar? Because I know they're actually um, a lot of times when you look them up, there's like a gigantic fish behind them, too. And my basic understanding is that it's seven sages um, that came from the north and they have a correspondence with a constellation up there. And there's other traditions that have seven sages as well. But if you have any input or insights on that. Uh, I don't, I, don't, hear it. I don't have a ton of insights on that, although I do, I think about the Rishis a lot, but okay. probably different 
ones. I'm wondering, though, if the seven that you're referring to are related to the seven sisters or the Pleiades or the Mm -hmm. Subaru. I always laugh. You know, the Subaru cars are named. Oh, with the stars. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of Subarus around here. I see that logo all the time. Oh, where are you? Pacific Northwest. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Me too. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why totally. are you thinking of, about Ursa Major? Perhaps, yes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So um, it's interesting. Mario's the pole star guy. Yeah, that's my thing. But I'm it's... super into that too. So I'm glad that we got we got you on the team. Nice man. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. It's interesting. There's a lot of myths involving seven, seven sages, seven stars or uh, luminaries of some kind. And um, a lot of times people do attribute them to the seven traditional planets, which I think actually makes tons of sense. And there's a lot of correspondences with that, with Ursa Major and the seven traditional planets. Um, And sometimes people attribute these things to the Pleiades, the seven sisters, right, right there in Taurus. Um, And I think that makes sense too for uh, certain myths and what have you. But I'm realizing that there's a lot of things going on in the Northern sky right around Polaris that pretty much blows my mind, (laughs) you know, on like a weekly basis. So I'm always digging for that info. The North is an interesting place, right? Because the North is... Like, for example, it's interesting. I actually had a friend come over who is an initiate of a different tradition from the ones I am. And he went to use my bathroom and he said, oh, you put the head of your bed facing north. That's so good. And I was like, I always think of it as being a really, I live in a small house, so that's just where the bed goes, right? But I always think in my line of thinking, because what it does when you put your head to the north is it pulls your consciousness out for more astral projection, that it's actually not the ideal because one day you might astral project and not come back. Now that's not oh. me, I'm like young and fine, but <laughs> yeah, right. You so for me and my ideas, I'm like, no, why would you put your head to the north? But for him and his traditions, he like liked the idea I think of that and I guess they had they had suggested that to him whereas I was like no you want to stay you want to put your body back the consciousness in the body put your head to the east or the west or the south but don't put it to the north well even I've been north for years I even was like really thinking about northern symbolism like you bring into the table Mario yeah well, even uh, in the Emerald Tablets, Thoth the Atlantean, he says meditate towards the north. I don't know if you guys remember that or have come across that passage or whatever. So I I think it's uh, really significant. I equate it to my true north, personally, and my sacred center. And so when I think of northern symbolism, that it pretty much just comes back around to that. And so I now, uh, having understood a lot of this stuff, I do work with the North as well. I think it's uh, really interesting. So as these guys well know. Another interesting thing I came up with, or I uh, read recently, Mario, was in terms of um, evidence for the, the Bible being more recent than what we're told as a work of literature in the book of, yeah, it's the book of Enoch. He talks about a ever an everlasting king, Melchizedek, and his habitation in the north. 
And I think um, there's more reason to believe that that's Melchizedek is symbolic of the pole star. Uh, I'm sure you probably could elaborate on that for us, but if that makes Polaris sense. wasn't always the pole star, if there's like this processional shift and before that it was uh, beta Ursae, beta Ursae minoris, then that shift supposedly happened somewhere in like the 12th or 13th century, which is theoretically way later than the Bible was written according to the conventional history. So I think that that's a interesting point in the corner of Bible being a much more recent creation. Sure. Yeah, that's really interesting. So the thing I think about, right, is that the ecliptic, you know, the hub of the wheel of the ecliptic would be the North star. Um, and then, you know, the path of the sun from the perspective of earth is going around, right. And around. And so, um, when you see depictions of like a God on a throne, sometimes he has the cherubim angels, the four faces of God, right. He'll have the Eagle and the man and the lion and the bull. And so these are the fixed signs. And so if he's in between the fixed signs symbolically uh, or technically, he would be at the North. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, Polaris would be uh, at the center point of all of the crosses of, uh, of the Zodiac. You know, uh, another Hindu god, Agni, was said to be sevenfold. Yeah. Oh, nice. That's cool. I didn't so, know that. So I don't know. I don't know if it came out, Mario, but the one reason why Mario, why we have all kind of woven the seven to the north is because both of the dippers have seven stars in them. Mm. And they even look like the shape seven. If you put if, if you connect the dots, you can make a funky seven out of both of them in, in a really interesting way. But this was on my mind, Mario, early, early, early in the weave, like in the first 10 minutes there. Because Lilith, this black moon Lilith, is the seven degrees of cancer. Well, that's a seven and a seven happening again. So there's two sevens right there in the seven degrees of cancer. Nice. Very cool. Oh, Oh, no. And then I'll just say that uh, cancer corresponds with the chariot card, which is the seventh card. Mm -hmm. And also, sorry, last thing regarding seven, uh, we associate G with seven. I know you've associated uh, G with three, Gabe and Chance, which makes sense. But I was just reading some notes that I had taken like years ago. And if you go through the alphabet and come back around, uh, G is also the 33rd letter. And now we have two games. That's awesome. What'd I do? <laughs> I'm going to remove the other one. <laughs> the multiverse of madness hits my brand. <laughs> the old Gabe froze and the new Gabe just showed up. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm kicking out Bizarro Gabe. Okay. <laughs> so what were you going to say, Emily? Oh, just that. Well, a couple things. Seven, of course, is the number of one of the traditional chakra systems, but also seven in occult sciences means victory. And also the the wheel of the of the spinning wheel, right, which is um, the 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 vortex chakra of existence, which is depicted in, I think, as you were mentioning, in key ten, the center point, like like one of the things that cards showing you how to do is to rise above the vortex wheel. And so how do you get to a still point? Well, you go to the eye, right? 
which I think you're rightly assessing as Polaris. But I don't know. I think that's interesting. I would be careful. I'm always careful, though, with anything like trans, transcendental meditation or anything where you're going to remove your consciousness from your body because, like, I was almost entered in a sweepstake that was like, somebody was like, you should get on one of these rockets that's trying to go into the sky. And I was like, I, <laughs> nope, I came here to be on earth. I won't be leaving um, until I'm done. Yeah. That's one of the re- reasons I'm highly suspect of all that we're told about people going to so-called space is because I'm like, I happen to know that my consciousness is innately tied to the electromagnetic field of this realm that I'm standing on right now. And the, like whenever you, there've been experiments where you put people into a, like a Faraday cage type room where all, all frequencies are completely blocked out and there's nothing at all going on in there. And the, uh, pretty quickly they go crazy. Yeah, dude, exactly. This is why, by the way, there's so many uh, sci-fi movies, space movies where things go terribly wrong (laughs) and people go nuts or whatever there's always some sort of catastrophe that happens because i think that it's kind of speaking to some of this stuff you know what kind of creeps me out is how thorough and how preserved the programming of a rapture seems to be it goes all the way back to the bible you see it in mary poppins You see in so many films where at the very end, everybody just floats away. And here today, they're still trying to sell us on a rapture. That's some crazy. Sure. Yeah, exactly. You know, and then back to this, the uh, (laughs) snake of it all, the word rapture comes from like uh, philologically, it's very connected to the words for reptile. Oh, yes. Okay. Hold on. I've got a lot just downloaded all at once. So I've been thinking about, about, this is really blasphemous, but uh, hang in there. I've been thinking about how Zeus, yes. Did I do it right? Is that the right way to do it? Or did I I invert it? Uh Uh-oh. Good enough. Blaspheme? (laughs) Hit us double. Give us double. A-R-I-Z. A-R-I-Z. Okay. How Zeus is, you know, so notorious for, you know, his modus operandi of not asking permission or caring much for permission and how there is theoretically something to be said about Jesus being a name that gives Zeus permission. Yes, Zeus. That is really something to think about. That saying yes, Zeus is giving permission to a spirit that didn't used to ask. Wow, that's really intriguing, man. And the fact that rapture has the word rape in it. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. from the same root. The word yes actually comes from the word for Zeus. Yep, and also the words for the sun. Uh, like, there's so many, actually. Uh, Yah, where we get Yahovah, Yahweh. Uh Man, it just goes on and on. I could probably, I could find a list right now of all the words that derive from that very, maybe first pairing of vowels, I and O. I, O, the one and the zero, the pole and the hole that gives us our like chief deity 
and all the different names for it across mythology. That is absolutely worth chewing on, man. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Fascinating. The the other thought I had, this is for you, Mario, is you, you said the hub, you mentioned that that North, the North star is like a hub and that just jumped out on my mind. I had to write it down. That's a HB. And HB is uh, becoming more and more interesting to me. Um, it's 82. That's the symbol for lead, which is the PB, the peanut butter that we just sacrificed. It relates to my Belfagor's Prime and the uh, J, uh, Benjamin Franklin Magical Square, 82. But HB, hub, is also like Holy Bible. It's also Habala in a very interesting way. So there's something really cool about the hub in the HB uh, that I'm probably going to be expanding on, but then, uh, yeah, that's all I'll say about that. Nice. Nice. You're always on it, man. That's great. We're getting to a point where I want to have everybody uh, put out some closing thoughts or final questions for Emily. And we don't have to like speed through it or anything, but let's try to find a way to like, conclude (laughs) sounds good um one last thing i just wanted to mention regarding this seven ursa major thing and when you see this seven potential seven in the sky um is i don't know if you're aware emily of what a lot of people believe where the swastika came from and that it's a northern symbol and so the uh, middle part of the swastika would be symbolic of the north star And then when you just look at the northern sky, you know, uh, four times a year during each season, you're going to see that Ursa Major is rotating around it. And so uh, it's each arm of the swastika, essentially. And so uh, I have yet to find anything that contradicts that information. So to me, it actually makes a lot of sense. Um, And so it's a shame that this symbol is encoded with so much amazing information. And, you know, seemingly, obviously, we know what people think of it. Um, and so I'm, I'm not trying to bring it back or anything, but I just think that it's worth acknowledging. Uh, and especially it's Northern connection too. I find it fascinating. It's carved in many, I mean, it's a Hindu symbol, right? Culturally. And so it's carved in to many buildings, actually in what my college, it was carved into one of the buildings there that predated world war two. But I did have a sad story of a friend who's, whose Hindi teacher, her daughter was named Svastika. And when they moved to the United States to teach, to, to live there, she had to change her name because people, people just aren't aware that it was a religious symbol predating um, the, you know, sort of atrocious. I'm not a very polit- like the atrocious political use of it in World War II, which, you know, we all, we don't have to get into because everyone knows, but, um, it's interesting for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think somebody's covering their tracks with corruption of symbols like that. There's a lot of symbols that have been corrupted. I don't get super political. Like some people really like diving into this politician or that politician. I'll go into Benjamin Franklin and that's about it. But- Fuck you, Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> But, Sorry, we have to say that it's a tradition that has to be is. said if Benjamin Franklin comes up, and somehow he always comes up every episode of everything. Because he was 
he's like America's hero occultist. Sort of. Um, yeah. The I, Aleister Crowley of his day. Yeah, but maybe not as creepy. Well, who knows? But he he was he was he knew that guy knew what he was doing. But he, you know, the where was I going with that? Oh, I I don't get super political into things. Like some people really like pulling it apart. I'll sometimes say what I notice people are doing in their relationship to politics, but I just sort of stay out of it because I'm don't feel like arguing with anyone. <laughs> Not a bad idea. I totally hear you. <laughs> you know, the other day I thought about the idea that the German war was called the Third Reich, but the swastika has four Reich angles to it. So there's like a potential dark prophetic Fourth Reich looming in the heavens at all times. Uh, but I say we just uh, go back to the fasty calendar so there's only three seasons and then they don't have a chance to bring out the fourth break. Go back to the three season year and foil their whole plan. Ah! I mean, those guys <laughs> create war and bloodshed or evil, right? So mm-hmm. however, they've usurped the symbols in the past and it's like, I don't mind getting political about that. I'm like, I don't like war. <laughs> Stop it. Um, or bloodshed or killing people, right? So anytime you see people doing like, you know them by their fruit, right? So you're like, oh, I see that this is evil because you just see evil things happening. Now, in our modern age, many of us might be blind to the evils that are happening around us because spin, hype, news, whatever, you know, is is happening. And I imagine, like, in that day, many people were blind to what was happening very close to them as well, right? And we have... I mean, people today still are using things like they did all these really atrocious experiments on twins that if you go to a college class in psychology, they'll still be teaching you about. (laughs) They'll be like, this was bad that they did that, but we're just going to (laughs) keep. Yeah. So there's a lot, there's a lot there, but yeah, like a lot of foundations of modern pharmacia can come from experiments that, that, group uh using the swastika we're doing yeah oh they yeah say- there's towns in south america i don't know if this is what you're gonna say gabe uh maybe not but there's towns in south america where a lot of germans live and they have an abundance of twins kind of uh mysteriously eerily and so there's a whole sort of rabbit hole you can go down with that one yeah I would, stuff, right? I, yeah i, I was me. gonna I was going to throw the quote out, and I don't know who this quote belongs to, but uh, science progresses one funeral at a time. Yeah. Sad one. (laughs) Uh, So I really love that you said that seven equals victory. Thank you for that. That's a gift I'm going to enjoy processing for a while. That's really neat. uh, Right away, it brings to mind the... uh, one of the Caesars, one of the Roman conquerors, uh, I think Constantine, had this line that was under this sign conquer, uh, which in in Latin is vici, uh, which is victory. So under this sign, all victories fall under this sign. You got it. You got it. Yes. And that's a very Cancerian kind of thing. Uh, 
what what do you got? What are you thinking? Well, so Mario was speaking about how seven is the chariot, right? And I always think about how there has been a discussion in occult occult things about maybe we should call it the charioteer, right? It's not called the charioteer. It's always wow. called the chariot. Why? Because the charioteer is the higher self that's driving the vehicle of the person. So when we're looking at what victory means, it's actually an embodied victory. You're in your chariot. The chariot, spoiler alert, is your body. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly right. 100% for sure. Yeah. Take care of your body, I guess. That's my. And I'll just throw out, I'm sure probably a, a lot of people in the chat and stuff already know, but Crowley gave Churchill the V for victory sign. Okay. Intriguing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> there's that. And, and the, the one more thing about that under this sign conquer that comes to mind is the kyborium, the word under. 100%. It, yeah. Yes. It implies this covenant, a covering, uh, firmament, if you will. Uh, a shell of some sort, but that all to me today in modern terms goes to uh, insurance, uh, meeting of the minds, uh, uh, sanctioned permission to do damage, uh, paying your dues in advance, all a lot to think about there. I'm still on this whole seven thing. <laughs> Good. Uh, there's oh, yeah. a lot of meanings for all the numbers. Every number has a specific meaning, right? So you'll, they, they'll come to you in weird moments. Seven is certainly a good number though. And a good one to think about as far as cancer. And of course, cancer is mostly in July, which is the seventh month. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Great point. What you got, so like in ancient Hebrew, according to Strong's concordances, Sheba, uh, I think you would say Sheba or maybe Sheba is the Hebrew word for seven. But then Shaba is like could mean an oath or captivity, like bondage. But then modern Hebrew speakers, when they say Shaba with like two B's, it's like their way of saying cool. When we say something's cool, we're good. It's kind it's of some weird. Because in Sanskrit, Shiva is corpse. There's a saying, Shiva without Shakti is Shiva. And it's it's a it's a literal understanding of the feminine aspect of languaging, which is the feminine aspect of power, entering with consciousness to create life, right? But the, there's the Shiva and Shiva again. Which sounds a lot like Shabbat. Really interesting. Yeah. And then I really think that there's a huge link between Sanskrit and Hebrew, personally. I think we're looking at the same tradition that just was separated across some time and distance. But definitely, uh, Saba is completeness or wholeness or finite. You know, you finished, you win in Hebrew. And then and then we, we do this VB switch between many languages. Uh all the time, V's get pronounced as B's and vice versa when people are moving from one language to the other, kind of like the LR thing. So that's Sav, Saba or Sava. So it's getting us back to our savior, completeness, fullness. And, you know, 
talking about the North thing as well, the, so the, the, the way that we got the Western Kabbalistic tradition and the Eastern yogic tradition, they, they, some people, some scholars do believe central origin point originating with Thoth, right? And so coming down, um, the, the way yoga tradition is, there were Dravidian people already present in India, but a lot of the yogic knowledge too came from what was known as the Aryan people. Again, unrelated to that whole World War II thing, the, the, they usurped that name, right? But those were people who were probably lo- nomadic, came from the north, you know, rumored to have blue eyes. And they have sort of a like when you hear people talking about them, they seem like star people from the north. Like they're very, and there's a very big focus there, which if you're in India, on the Himalayan mountains, right? And the sacred mountains to Shiva. And anyway, which is north. Yeah, no, exactly. I think the Aryan word ultimately is a northern word for various reasons. And so it makes sense that, you know, there would be the uh, European Aryans using the swastika and then you have the Indian Aryans using the swastika. And so I've said this before, but and I know you've been to India, too, but, you know, uh, seeing little taxi rickshaw things and it's a red swastika and it says Aryan on it. It just like blew my mind sort of thing. But I think the common thing is, is really Northern symbolism. And I have a book I'm waiting to uh, dig into and it gets into all of that stuff. It's called the, um, the Arctic homeland of the Vedas. Cool. Yeah. 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 Nice. So seventh triangular number is 28. Two plus eight gives you the one brings it all together again. That's the, 28 pads on your palms of your hands. It's a full moon. How's that for completion? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeah, buddy. (laughs) All right. Well, it seems as though there's really no end to the weaving and the flowing and the knowledge. (laughs) You guys are so amazing. (laughs) This has been a good vibrant. Emily, you're welcome back anytime. As I've said, even if it's not like, you're the honored guest of the week. You know, I bring in my homies to help me out every Wednesday and you're totally welcome on the roster of regulars like Gabriel and Mario here. Uh, so just keep an eye out for <laughs> one that looks fun. And if you want to join anytime, you got nothing else going on on a Wednesday anyway, hit me up. I uh, really love having you on. And if not, we'll just make sure and do it again pretty soon. Next time there's some interesting space weather. So uh, we'll finish up here. Is there, um, can you give people, I should have had to do this way earlier in the show, but can you give people your website and let them know in full detail all the things that you have on offer for people that want to work with you and or follow what you do more? For sure. And thank you so much, Chance. It's always so fun to talk to you. And Mario, Gabe, you guys are awesome. I loved, I loved hearing all your thoughts and chatting with you. So thank you for having me on. It's such fun. Um, and yeah, my website is my name, emilyridout.com. That's E-M-I-L-Y-R-I-D-O-U-T.com. Um, I'm on Instagram pretty regularly, which is Emily Ridout Astro Yoga. And then you can find pretty much everything I do from there. 
I do astrology readings. I teach classes on this stuff. I can teach you how to read astrology. I can teach you to do the form of medicinal astrology, which is present in astro yoga, you know, um, and I'm a nice person. So if people listen to this, you know, reach out and say hi and I'll say hi back and we can collab. All right. And where do they find you, Mario? They can find me at symbolicstudies.com. And I also am on Instagram and Twitter and YouTube and TikTok all over the place. I have a telegram. So uh, I basically put out content revolving around uh, each sign during the sign itself. And so we're coming to an end here with Gemini stuff and I'll be moving on to cancer. So I'm really looking. And what did you just put out? Um, with, with, uh, with literally my last video, is that what you're asking? Oh, I did a video on dice because I'm doing tarot readings and I really like to throw dice to pull the cards. And for me, it's interesting. And there's a correspondence with Mercury. And so I got into a little bit of um, divination systems that that correlate with dice and use dice like geomancy. So check that out. You know, I meant to put a comment on the video, but I now I got you in person. That's Washington, D.C. The dice go roll the dice. <laughs> nice, nice. That's awesome. Those fools are wheeling and dealing. <laughs> Indeed, Wheel they are. Yeah, man. Uh, uh, Slick dissident. That's my channel, Gabe. That's my name, uh, and I'm a weaving spider too. So check us out on Saturday nights, all night into Sunday. All right, that's it, guys. Great show. Thanks for hanging out, everyone. Loved everyone. Everyone's comments in the chat. <laughs> with like maybe a little bit of an exception to that statement, but you guys are awesome. Love you all. And I'll see you for maybe Friday night. The Marvelous Demystifiers reconvene to talk more moon night. All right. Much love. Bye-bye. <laughs>